0: If somebody told you on New Year's Day 2020 how much the world was going to change, you probably wouldn't have believed them. But suppose you had known, what would you have done differently? How would you have prepared?
1: And what if you would even more time to prepare, say three years? What action would you have taken? Would you have moved somewhere different? Applied for different jobs? Developed different skills? Would you have warned your friends? And do you think they'd have even believed you?
0: We can only look back now at these hypotheticals and wonder what we could have done. But here's the thing. There's another crisis heading our way. A crisis that's sure to be worse than COVID-19. It's the climate crisis. We still have time to take action and as a result, live happier, healthier, and fairer lives. So the question actually isn't what should we have done? It's what will we do now? And how can we use our experience of COVID as a wake-up call to take real action?
1: Welcome to the COVID Alarm Clock.
0: Hello everyone, I'm Dara Wyn.
1: And I'm Ellen Hagerty. And welcome to our economics <laughs> episode. Uh, so
0: another, another recording session of the covid alarm clock it is the third of january today 2021 um the situation in ireland is (laughs) that we have now gone into a full-on lockdown things are as bad if not worse than in the first wave according to um the Chief medical officer. So I think there might be a bit more of an angry tone <laughs> this week, Ellen.
1: Angry or maybe slightly depressed. Yes. Angry slash depressed. Yeah, I think there's de- <laughs> de- definitely.
0: <laughs> uh, definitely. Yeah. I wasn't expecting the COVID situation to get this bad in the midst of uh, recording was, the podcast. Tara. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I th- oh, yeah, fair I enough. thought it was going to be a retrospective thing, but now it's actually very much uh, like. <laughs> Commenting on what's going on Yeah Before we get into the nitty gritty Of economics I have a positive Positive uh, Opening question for you then today to, to, To try and get To get the positivity levels up So Yay What are the things Alan That you have done this year Because of COVID Which you are glad you did Or what are the things That you wouldn't have done Were it not for COVID
1: Um well, I think I've 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 taken up what a lot of Irish people have done this year, which is sea swimming, um, which is amazing, and um, I've gotten braver as as the year has gone on. Um, a couple of years ago, I jumped in the sea. I think I was still slightly drunk on a, on a New Year's Day, and um. <laughs> because that was the only way I would have jumped in the cold Irish Sea. But as I, I've gone from just jumping in and out now to actually swimming around and I'm so proud of myself. I always come out feeling like I've done something amazing. I, I'm so proud of the fact that I can get in the cold water and my 11-year-old daughter comes in with me as well, which is just fantastic, ama- Superb. Great. Yeah, so that's amazing. Um, I have, we don't go to after school activities anymore, which is really actually lovely. Um, you know, I think that you do lose a little bit by not being able to do all of these extra activities, but I actually think the children are a lot more relaxed, not having to run around from pillar to post, which is really cool. And, um, yeah, they're, they're probably the two big things off the, off the top of my head. Right. What about you, Dara? Um,
0: a couple of little things like i like i learned a couple of nice pieces on piano that i kind of had just time to sit and learn a uh, nice chopin nocturne uh but Aww. then the big thing for me i think was was kind of getting back to nature a bit um like so when i lived in kenya I got really into bird watching and knew like the names of loads of birds over in kenya and then came back to ireland and didn't know you know, the names of half the birds that you'd see here. And we have a bird table yeah. out by the sitting room in Galway. And now we like know all the, you know, know all the Irish garden birds. And uh, yeah, think just definitely have a, a greater appreciation of an understanding maybe of nature in Ireland, which is uh, which is yeah. really, really lovely.
1: That was actually, we bought a tent because of the COVID, oh, which yeah. we would never, ever have done. And that was amazing cuz you'd get up in the morning and you'd see the dew on the grass cuz you'd have to go out of the tent and we'd light a campfire in my we camped on my parents farm and they'd come up and sit around the campfire of an evening with us which we'd never yeah, yeah. like Getting back to the simple, yeah, day that we sure. used to laugh like we were kind of like people from a hundred years ago, sitting around a campfire, eating our dinner, and having a laugh with no television and no radio. Yeah, but there's and looking at the yeah, stars. Yeah, there's something
0: very holistic and wholesome about it. I got I got oh, up for gorgeous. I got up for the dawn chorus a couple of mornings in May as well, and that was absolutely unbelievable. It's like a whole other world, like because you get up, there's yeah. no one else around, and you can just hear these birds, like you know, like. So, yeah, just amazing. Really, really amazing. Yeah. Um, and that kind of leads nicely then to a study I saw during the week that biological diversity evokes happiness in people. So the study was published at the start of December that more bird species in a person's vicinity increases life satisfaction of Europeans as much as higher income.
1: Great. I want to read that study, Dara. I'll send send it on to you
0: afterwards, but uh, I think it will kind of tie into what we're talking about today because there's a a hypothesis, uh, the biophilia hypothesis, that basically says that people have an innate love of nature. All people have an innate love of nature and and
1: and Dara, there's doctors, it's been recommended, you know, in the medical profession, they are recommending in, in certain cases that GPs prescribe time and mm. nature to help people with different illnesses. A lot of it, you know, th- things like anxiety, other things that impact people's mental health. And they are recommending now that doctors prescribe time and nature as an actual genuine prescription. Yeah,
0: but it, tot- it totally makes sense because like all of our sort of needs and dispositions are like based on you know our evolutionary past so like the fact that we have a sweet tooth the fact we like sweet things was because sugar mm. was rare um so whenever yeah. we did come across sugar in nature we would gorge on it and now like that has completely backfired because we have as much access <laughs> to sugar as we want and we have a global <laughs> obesity problem in in the developed world and we
1: have a COVID stove so
0: this sorry <laughs>
1: <laughs> the COVID stone. Yeah, yeah exactly. But then I remember back at the start you'd be pegging biscuits at the children to try and see so you could do a bit of work, you know. But their teeth are all falling out of their heads now. Yeah, but if you,
0: that has backfired, all right. But if you take that same uh, that same evolutionary perspective, <laughs> of course it makes sense that we get happy being around nature because back you know a few thousand years ago, we would need to be in healthy ecosystems. So or brain has learned to find that experience pleasurable so of course it makes it makes sense that we have a natural um tendency to be happy in in nature and it's like I totally agree with you saying you know about doctors prescribing it and stuff because it is for me it is a fundamental part of being human uh and if we deprive ourselves of that it can't be good
1: and actually, there was, at the beginning of lockdown here in Ireland, people who lived in the city centre um, during the two-kilometre limit, that, you know, there was there was some people living in kind of apartment blocks that had very little access to green space. And because they couldn't go outside the two-kilometre limit, they couldn't go to parks, some of the city centre parks we do have. And um, they found it unbelievably stressful. Mm. There was actually, there was radio programmes dedicated to yeah, it. Yeah. So, it's... um. Yeah, it's it's a, it's it's so important. In
0: some of the reading I did for the Masters, I came across this lovely sort of framework for when you're t- discussing any, you know, studies of human behavior or studies of human activity, that you have to take that sort of hierarchy into account. So, like, we are living on this planet and we rely on the planet's natural ecosystems. So that's kind of the f- first level of any hierarchy looking at, you know, studies of human, any sort of human activity. Then after that, the study says the next most important thing is human rights. So once we've got, like, once we're taking, you know, people's needs in terms of human rights should be being met, and only then can we discuss more developed stuff like markets and the economy, which is what we're going to be looking at today.
1: Sounds like that framework might be a little bit... Upside down at the moment, Sarah.
0: <laughs> well, that's the thing. That does happen. That does happen sometimes, <laughs> doesn't it? That the economy is seen as the pinnacle of of stuff, and everything else is secondary. Uh, into place, but COVID yeah. has definitely woken us up to that. Uh, so, sort of the way the way I kind of think of it at the moment, if you want to be really big picture and a bit new agey, well, not new agey about it, is like if you look. I am first like a part of the natural world. <laughs> you know, I am uh I am a living creature. And then more specifically, I'm a human being. Uh like that is, you know, if you look at it like in a taxonomical kind of way or whatever. And then after that, yeah. I'm a human, then I'm a citizen. I'm a citizen of Ireland, I'm a global citizen, I'm a European citizen. And then after that, I'm a consumer that, and, and maybe a trader or whatever that is involved in markets and the economy. So that's kind of, I think...
1: That requires quite a big kind of change in thinking because it's only recently, you know, if you look at science and, and ecosystems, it's, it's only quite recently that humans have actually been usually you'd see a picture of an ecosystem and it would be a circle and humans would be standing outside that circle. Yeah. And it's only quite recently that humans have actually been incorporated into this, you know, any of these graphical images of ecosystems or any of these definitions of ecosystems. It's almost harkening back to that kind of biblical... You know, dominion over the earth. You know, we stand apart yeah, from nature. Yeah, but,
0: but, but the, yeah, the way I look at it is sort of like my, say, my ancestors, if you go b- back far enough, my ancestors were non human. So I'm first like a living creature. Then maybe a few hundred thousand years yeah. ago, my ancestors became human. Then, like maybe 10,000 years ago, my ancestors developed this sort of thing of citizenship when, you know, like civilization started to develop. And then only in yeah. the last few hundred years really has has this thing of being a consumer become a like a thing that every human being is that like you know even up to three four hundred years ago there wasn't that same level of of trade or or, or commerce that we have
1: takeaway coffees (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, so uh, I think that's just a nice way to sort of frame what we're going to be talking about today which is looking at the economy um, the relationship between COVID and the economy and the relationship between the economy and climate change. And I think, let's go back again to the start of March. And would you agree with me, Ellen, that public health was put ahead of the economy back at the first lockdown in Ireland?
1: Absolutely, it was put first. Um, Leo Redker, when he came out and made that you know, unforgettable speech, he actually said our economy will suffer. It will bounce back. But that was in the context of we are going to have to shut down the economy, essentially, and everything's going to have to shut down. People will have to stop spending money. People are going to have to stay home from their jobs. But we will, as a government, support those people. We will support you. So it, it absolutely was, was, public health w- was put first.
0: Which was following those hierarchies we talked about earlier on because it was essentially putting human rights like the right to health care make sure the health system wasn't overwhelmed so that everyone can get health care and sort of the right to life almost to save lives yeah
1: absolutely um, Yeah. so it was
0: very clearly that we were saying right we are putting human welfare human well-being ahead of the economy which was brilliant and it yielded really good results and allowed the economy to kind of get back up and running a bit in sort of June, July, August. Um, But (laughs) as we said at the start, we're in the start of January 2021 recording this. And at the start of December in Ireland, um, NEFIT, or National Public Health Emergency Team, um, recommended that the government... Don't reopen non-essential retail. Don't reopen um, restaurants that they allow household visits uh, later on in December for Christmas. The government didn't follow that advice. They decided, right, we're going to reopen businesses. And we are now in the worst situation we have been in in terms of COVID cases uh, since the pandemic started in Ireland. So basically what happened was the government decided to put the economy ahead of people getting to visit their families at Christmas, (laughs) um, which they didn't know, which they can say they didn't know was going to happen, but that's sort of what the advice said. The advice recommended if you reopen this retail and, uh, restaurants, then we recommend that you don't allow household visits. Um,
1: And I'm I'm not sure if that's what everybody really wanted, Dara I know certainly a large vociferous group of people did want it, obviously people who own businesses, but I'm not sure if a lot of people who wanted to go home and see their families for Christmas necessarily
0: wanted to be able to go to the shop Definitely, uh, I would say based on those surveys, you know, on the attitude surveys, I would say most people didn't want that, if you had a choice you know, especially if it was pitched to you as if you had a choice of having you know, having a chance to go out for a meal or having a chance to visit family and friends over Christmas. Um, but then the other thing is that the economic consequences of this decision have been disastrous because I've heard people on the radio before Christmas restaurateurs that said, well, if we had a choice between opening in the first three weeks of December or opening Between Christmas and New Year's, we would have taken opening between Christmas and New Year's. So even the businesses that this was meant to serve, it didn't serve. And I think that kind of shows that good COVID policy is good economic policy. If we had listened to the advice, we could have kept numbers down and maybe then opened the restaurants when people wanted the restaurant, when the restaurant owners wanted the restaurants opened, if that Mm. makes sense those three weeks where we reopened where I guess businesses got to do some sort of business means that we're now in a really, really strict lockdown for at least the next six weeks where Mm. everything has been shut down. And so the longer term economic impacts are going to be more severe than if we had just done nothing. Um, And if you kind of expand that out You can see countries that where they had really effective COVID policy is where they've been most economically successful. So, like the example of New Zealand, where New Zealand shut down, shut down everything, had a really, really hard lockdown, and had a COVID elimination strategy.
1: And yeah, and closed its borders. So
0: they had something like a 16% drop in in GDP in that quarter where they closed everything down but they eliminated covid and barring a 2 week quarantine for people coming into the country they are essentially back to normal and have recovered economically
1: so i suppose if we think about how this then would apply to climate change dara i think i think what we would have to say is that the economy can can't continue on as as it as business as usual i think the way our economy is structured the way we look at how our world is structured would have to change we would have to go back to this triangle where it's at people's first public human rights second and the economy third Whereas I think we have that triangle upside down now where it's economy first and everything else has to kind of slot in around it. A bit like in December where the government put the economy first and then everybody else, if you wanted to see your family, you kind of had to stay in your house and stay away from everybody in order to slot in around Yeah, and, and, and not
0: only that, but it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense for the, for the economy, you know, because, because like, so COVID's going to happen you know, COVID is going to happen. So you can't ignore that in your economic policy. New Zealand showed us that actually if we take early intervention, um, go hard on COVID, then we can get the economy back to normal more quickly. And I think Mm. that's where the real parallel is with climate change because the cost of climate action is far, far less than the cost of climate breakdown in the future. So like we said, effective COVID policy is effective economic policy. Effective climate policy is effective economic policy as well, because we know climate change is going to change everything. So if we're not taking that into account into our economic policies, then it's going to have huge economic impacts down the line.
1: So basically, the economy is going to change whether we like it or not. So once again, can we not have agency over that? Can we not take some control now? If yeah. we take measures now with regard to our economy and how we structure it, if we do that now, then we can go forward, allowing people to have a good lifestyle, allowing people to you know, have businesses that don't impact on the environment, but also to secure a livable future for yeah, everybody. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if we continue with business as usual, and we continue with our greenhouse gas emissions, we continue on, you know, grow GDP, let's keep going here, come on, come on, come on. What's going to happen is climate change is going to happen and all of the the extreme weather events, the climate refugees, the habitat loss, land loss, biodiversity loss—that's all going to happen, which is going to hugely cripple the economy. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So why not? Why not future-proof the economy now rather than try and have a massive like what we're doing now? We're trying to catch up, you know, with the with the level five lockdown. We're trying to put the broken pieces of spilt milk back in the bottle, which is... Yeah, Yeah.
0: and there are are a couple of things in that regard, I suppose, Ellen. Like, the stuff that we know is going to happen now. So it's like you mentioned in another episode, that if we'd known about COVID, we could have... With enough warning, we could have built a new hospital rather than paying a fortune to take over a private hospital.
1: Or just took over the private hospital, bought it out.
0: Think about that that in terms of climate change. There are parts of Ireland... There are people's houses now that we know, we don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but we know that they are going to be underwater in 50 years or 60 years or 100 years. We know. So the cheapest time to acknowledge that is now. You know, mm-hmm. now is the time. Yeah. We know they're going to be underwater at some stage in the future. So why kick the can down the road? The cheapest time to do that is is to do it now rather than when it's... Reaches crisis point, and then it's like, oh shit, where are we going to put all these people? Um, and Dara,
1: like what you're saying there sounds kind of you know, it sounds a little bit uh sensationalist almost. Oh, houses are going to be underwater, but like, so because of the lockdown, we do a lot of walking along our local beach, and um, we live um, kind of in South Dublin, North Wicklow area, and our cliffs are falling into the sea, they're falling into the sea. Like it's dramatic. Like every year now, you get just these chunks of cliff falling onto the beach, and like they're proper chunks, mm. like two to three meters in places. Just these chunks of cliff falling off down onto the beach, and because uh, we we nearly bought a house near uh, near one of those, and I was there kind of frantically measuring to see how many meters the houses the housing <laughs> estate was from the from the cliffs, and uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, like. You know, that's just going to get worse the more storms we get. So, you know, it's actually not that unrealistic. No, but it's that it's, houses are going to be but, underwater, yeah. that land is going to become unstable, that yeah, people are going to be affected. But it's
0: not but it's not even it's not even that it's not unrealistic, Ellen. It's inevitable. Like we yeah. know, like like with the time lag, it's like at the moment now, we know COVID cases are going to rise more than what mm-hmm. they are because of where we are in the trajectory. We know because of the amount of warming that's coming, loads of sea ice is going to melt. We don't know exactly when, but sea level is going to rise. So there are places that we know are definitely going to be underwater at some stage. Yeah. So now is the time to take action. And I suppose to go back to what you were saying as well, the about that thing, that effective climate policy is effective economic policies. So the country that takes the lead on this, that you know, put the investment in now to be ecologically friendly, are going to have the competitive advantage in the future, so it's not.
1: And Derek, yeah, because countries that are stable, so countries that don't have houses that are just randomly going mm. underwater or cliffs that are falling into the sea, you know, or that you know, countries that don't have that level of uncertainty of oh, yeah. what's going to happen next to wreak yeah, havoc yeah. on our lives, have more stable economies. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And I think that I think that kind of shows that you know uh we we have we're in recession now in Ireland we have had a crisis that has put us into recession that has made us then have to sort of restrict those you know restrict services or will you know lead to cuts eventually. yeah we are in the era of crises now the climate crisis is coming and that's going to you know involve lots of different mini crises and we can't have an economy that collapses every time that we have a crisis. <laughs> so we need uh, yeah, absolutely. you know so we need and to put more far more long-term planning in and we need to have an economy that is more robust that doesn't, you know, go into a massive recession every time some kind of crisis comes along.
1: Absolutely. And even if you think about, you know, because the climate crisis, we also have the biodiversity crisis which will lead to a food security crisis. So it's 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 all absolutely connected. So, and by working to keep the country stable for our country to adapt and mitigate for climate change, so to do things to help reduce our impacts on climate change and to do things that will keep our country secure as the climate changes, um, we'll have a broader action, hopefully, in that it will help to reduce emissions. And if other countries can follow our lead, you know, the climate crisis needn't be a crisis. Totally,
0: totally. Um, and then i suppose just to you know just to kind of uh because i think i think the fact that i've now said that you know about places going under the sea and it's all quite abstract and futuristic um that in the year of 2020 natural disasters the 10 most costly natural disasters caused 150 billion euro worth of damage um so it's something that's happening already you know it's it's something that's yeah. happening and and that report was quite uh, depressing in a way in that the costly disasters were disasters that happened in developed countries where people had their assets and their businesses insured. Whereas, So that doesn't even take into account, really, the natural disasters that happened in less developed countries where there wouldn't be that insurance. So it's already happening on a big scale. Natural disasters are already having this massive economic impact.
1: And if you bring that back to a small business scale, so if you live in Benden or Skibreen or Clonakilty. This anecdote
0: will be applicable to people outside (laughs) of Cork as
1: well. Yeah, basically, if you live in Cork. (laughs) But, you know, town centres that that flood and a lot of small businesses in those town centres can't get flood insurance now. So that's a huge stress on a business, you know, that's a huge economic stress. Um, And, you know, if you think of all the small businesses in the country and if you're not able to get business insurance or flood insurance or even for homes, if they're not able to get insured, you know, that that is huge economic impacts as well. Because sometimes it's just easier to shut down than to keep going if you can't keep your stock. If if you you don't know what's going to happen to your stock the next time there's a there's I think the
0: reason that this probably sounds, you know, quite abstract and maybe a bit doomongering mongering is because we haven't had that acknowledgement of climate change as the crisis that it is, like we did have about COVID. And it's it's like that we say, if you had known this time last year, if you'd known this like three years ago about COVID, think of how we could have prepared our economy. Think of how robust we could have made it, so that things were so that our lives weren't affected by COVID as much. And that's the attitude we need to have with regard to the economy when it comes to to climate change.
1: And I suppose think about how we could change our economy yeah. as well and think about yeah, yeah. what what we prioritize in our lives. Yeah. Can we still have a functional economy
0: totally.
1: with a little bit less?
0: Yeah. You there's know, there's a I have a lovely Jason Hickel quote there, actually, Ellen, that's um and he writes about global inequality and political ecology. So he's covering a lot of bases there. No more than yourself, Ellen, your vet, teacher, mother, climate activist, uh, polymath. TV, uh,
1: TV star. TV star.
0: <laughs> so uh, maybe what do you reckon is, is p- political ecology the next, uh, the next move for you, maybe, Ellen?
1: I think I might lie down <laughs> instead. Um,
0: but it's a lovely, it's a lovely quote. Uh, where he says we cannot reverse ecological breakdown while at the same time pursuing GDP growth but we can reverse ecological breakdown while at the same time ensuring flourishing lives for all that is the story we need to be telling, that is where hope lies Uh, I think that is so so powerful
1: That's really, yeah and like if you think about how people live their lives and so even in our little housing estate here there's a lady who used to commute in kind of an hour to morning and evening to work she can now go for a walk on the beach with the time she's got spared yeah yeah um, for us we don't need to have somebody mind our children anymore um, our children get to be with us during the day you know it's a little bit fraught at times but are, there, there certainly are improvements in our lives yeah. you know with with these small changes and I think if we look at how we can improve community life, like we all know our neighbours now because we're all, we're all yeah. at home more. There's a much greater sense of community. Yeah. And if we could use that as a basis to where we might like to go, do we want to go back to commuting? Do we want to go back to um, having to kind of put our children in childcare for as much time? Do we want to be working a five-day week, both, both members of, you know, family, if you're in a family? Do we want to have to leave our community every day just to kind of yeah. run back at the weekend and try and make up. You know, for this it.
0: episode is taking such a big topic that we <laughs> we could make a whole series about just talking about COVID, the economy, and and climate change because it does interact with every facet of our lives. Um,
1: and it's like it we, you can't we can't deny either. Like the economy is hugely yeah, important yeah. because you can't have a properly functioning like social system in an economy without the economy because how do you support the vulnerable if those who are not vulnerable aren't there to provide support so yeah so absolutely the economy is extremely important but it's just maybe the way the economy is at the moment just isn't the right fit for for us human beings. You know will
0: people think that what you're saying is unrealistic or too idealistic and I would say that if you have been once again if you've been told january 2020 how much the world was going to change you wouldn't have believed it so no. you have to, you know so let's so yeah. so let's reimagine the world in a positive way rather than in a, in a negative way and it totally is it totally is possible so so something i was thinking of that might sort of get us to start thinking exactly about about how the economy might need to change is The idea that COVID placed limits or boundaries on the economic activity that we can carry out. Essentially, any economic activity where there was people meeting up in large groups, be it in offices, be it um, in restaurants or pubs. COVID put a limit on that economic activity. So it didn't say the economy had to shut down. Some parts of our economy like manufacturing, like medical goods and stuff, actually thrived during COVID, but a lot of things were limited by, by the science that close contact with a large number of people would make COVID spread. Um, so, it, so COVID put limits on the economic activity basically. So If we are serious about climate action, we need to start thinking about similar limits in relation to economic activity. And basically, the limits that climate action puts on the economy are what we call planetary boundaries. Like We we are very aware of what those limits are. The science tells us what those limits are. And it's been well researched. So, Ellen, do you want to explain... The concept of planetary boundaries a bit.
1: Yeah. So if you imagine having like a set portion of resources mapped out for the year, for every single year going forward, and you can take so many of those resources where things can actually replenish themselves and we're not eating into next year's resources. A bit like having a jar of sweets and you've got a jar of sweets to keep you going for the year. But like, for example, in Ireland, we ate all the sweets by April. So we'd nothing left for the next for the yeah. for the following year. So we had to eat into next year's sweets. So what happens is we have to use our resources in a way that's sustainable. We have we can use you know an X amount of resources every year to the point where things can replenish themselves, where we don't have an impact on global emissions. To a point where you know we are not impacting on other countries' resources. If we go beyond that, then we are taking more than our fair share. Yeah,
0: totally. It's, it's,
1: it's about fair There's share. There's a couple
0: of examples within that. Like, it's a finite planet. Like, things, are, things aren't infinite. So there is only a certain amount of oil. There's only a certain amount of gas. There's only a certain amount of coal. There's
1: only a certain amount of land yeah. for growing food. Yeah.
0: So, so even, if, even if climate change wasn't a thing, we would eventually run out of oil and coal and gas. So even if we didn't have to worry about climate change, we would have to start thinking about, okay, how are we going to change our systems when we run out of this stuff? So as you said, we can use it all up now. And then our options are, we need to rapidly stop using it or else else we keep using it and have like climate catastrophe, like an unmanageable amount of warming. There are also finite resources when we talk about metals and and things like that, that there is only a certain amount of cobalt in the world.
1: Lithium, cobalt for yeah, our electronic cars. And we
0: need to think about, okay, is this generation going to use all of that or are we going to share that out?
1: And Dara, the other thing we have to remember is the population is growing as well. So, yeah. you know,
0: yeah. um, every
1: time the population grows, we have to be mindful that we have to leave enough for everybody. So we have to think about, well, our share reduces. Yeah,
0: even renewable resources. So even stuff that we can grow every year, like food, like, you know, two feed a growing population, like timber, like stuff that we can replenish. The mm. planet is only a certain size. And there is only a certain amount of growing of timber for construction and paper that we can do without affecting the ecosystems that we need. So, at the moment, to, to borrow a, a financial or an economic term, it's like we've got a massive overdraft at the moment. It's like we are, like you have a certain amount of money and you spend more than you have. We have a certain amount of resources and we're using way more than we have. We are borrowing from future generations. Mm. But rather than like debt collectors coming, it's going to be extreme weather <laughs> and, uh, and warming. And we're here.
1: No, just put it on the credit card. Yeah, it's fine. that's totally
0: that's totally what we're doing. So at the moment.
1: So Dara, like, are you saying hurricanes are a bit like debt, debt collectors, like the really bad ones with the with the baseball? Well, backs? there was a
0: Storm Ellen a few months ago, wasn't there? So maybe <laughs> you should answer that question uh, rather than me.
1: <laughs> Tis hourly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Um, but yeah, no, so at, so at the moment, our, our our economy is not taking into account these these natural limits. so if you, if you think about that in COVID terms, with the economy, there is a certain amount of mixing with other people that we can do to keep the economy going and to keep COVID at safe levels. once we exceed that, like we did at the start of December then we're in big trouble. And it's exactly the same um, economically. We have exceeded what we should be doing to keep warming within safe levels, to keep biodiversity maintained. But we aren't seeing the full impacts that we're going to see yet because of that time lag that we mentioned. So we have to remember that the actions we're taking now are going to have impacts well, well into the future.
1: Yeah, like we're seeing the same thing with peat, for example. So at the moment, people who use peat, so either to burn it or especially people who use peat to grow stuff, um, and that could be commercially or on a smaller level, um, are being told they're going to have to stop using peat. And peat's an amazing growing medium and they're going to have to swap it out and find something else. And in the short term, that's a huge stress and a huge impact. But it's not being contextualised because in the long term, If we leave peat in the bogs, we can actually help to mitigate climate change. So while we might have a total stress over the next couple of years trying to find something really good to replace peat, in the long term, that is going to help. If we leave it in the bogs, it's going to help sequester carbon. If we don't leave it in the bogs, we are potentially exacerbating climate change, which is going to have huge impacts on how we grow stuff in the future because of you know, droughts, floods, and extreme weather yeah. events.
0: Yeah, and the yeah, yeah, and and those growers are there to draw a parallel. They are the frontline workers, aren't they, of the climate crisis? Really, we talk about our frontline COVID workers. It's the people out growing things, exposed to these extreme weathers. they are, they are the climate crisis frontline workers.
1: <laughs> they are. They are. That's that's a good analogy.
0: so this thing about measuring measuring progress in terms of GDP the aim is to grow the economy by 3% every year regardless you know that's like a good Mm. your government have done well if the economy grows by 3% every year the problem with that is that growing 3% every year you need to use more stuff you need to use more stuff and it's exponential you're not adding 3% you're multiplying by 3% So 3% growth this year is more than 3% growth last year. And it's exponential to the point that if we did achieve 3% growth every year, in 25 years' time, the economy would have doubled in size. And in 80 years' time, the economy will be 10 times bigger than it currently is. And that's the aim of economic growth. And we know, imagine the amount of consumption that we would be having, if our economy, if we did achieve those aims and had an economy 10 times bigger than it was now. But
1: to what end, Dara? Exactly, like,
0: yeah.
1: What do we get from it? Do we get, do we get double the quality of life?
0: No, no, Do we exactly. get double
1: the amount of people living flourishing lives? It's, yeah.
0: I think <laughs> what that makes very clear to me is we can say economic growth isn't that bad. But the, if the aim is to have the economy 10 times bigger in 80 years, we know mm. that's just not physically possible. So, yeah. like we said, early intervention, to, like taking action now.
1: So, like, Dara, I suppose what should, like, we're talking here, you know, about the economy and it's based on GDP, it's based on profit, and we're kind of saying this is a broken model. Well, what should we look for so
0: I think I think it comes back to the stuff that we were talking about throughout this episode about that the economy needs to be something that's there to help make sure everyone's basic needs are met and that everyone has a good, a good standard of living without, and doing that in a way that doesn't wreck the planet. So rather than just having this unrestricted growth where we can do whatever we like to the planet and not even serve all the people, we need a new model. And... Luckily, someone has done the groundwork for us, and there is a there is such a model that exists, Ellen, isn't there?
1: You're talking about donut economics,
0: I am indeed. yeah.
1: so yeah, donut yeah, I, I would be a, quite a fan of donut economics. and that is a it's an economic model by an Oxford economist. and her name is Kate Raworth. And yeah, it's a funny name. So the name comes from the actual diagram which is used to explain it which is a kind of a fat ring with a hole in the middle. Um, and I think rather than me trying to explain the image, I'm just going to say if you could Google donut economics to actually look at the image, it's a really, it's, it's it explains it really clearly. But what it is essentially is it's a way of measuring the economy that is that moves away from this very simple one number GDP yeah, um, metric that we use at the moment, uh, which simply measures the amount of stuff and services we make and the amount of money we make. What Kate Rawworth says is, she argues that the current economic model is outdated because it's a model that we came up with back, you know, around the same time as we started pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, really. And it was before we realised the harm and wreck we were doing to the planet um.
0: And it's, and, yeah, and it's a bit fantastical, like it doesn't really take reality into account all that much. So.
1: <laughs> no, it doesn't. And so donut economics measures economic success differently and it, it completely reframes what economic success is. And it, it basically encapsulates all the stuff we've been talking about already. So the idea of respecting planetary boundaries and the, the like seeking basic human rights for everybody.
0: It's finding that sweet spot that we can't exceed planetary boundaries in our economic activity. So that's the outer limit of the donut. Yeah. But We also have to make sure that nobody falls through, the hole in the middle gets left behind, that everyone's basic needs are being met. So it's about finding that sweet spot.
1: Yeah, so it, it kind of describes an ecological ceiling that we can't go above. So we, we measure that ceiling by looking at a variety of indicators. So climate change, air pollution, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification and, you know, access to fresh water. And then on the other side of it, which is the hole you've just described, Dara, is like a, a floor that we can't go below. So nobody wants to fall into that donut hole. Kate Raworth calls this, she calls it social foundations. And, you know, these social foundations are something that I take for granted. And Dara, you probably take for granted. So many of us take for granted health, health, Education, access to food and water, access to energy, peace and justice, housing, equality, basic income, and an opportunity to be able to work. And, you know, I think most of us here in Ireland have this, but there are people who fall through the cracks. And then if we move, you know, beyond Ireland and we move globally, so many people don't have these social foundations. And is that right? Like, is that just? And wouldn't we have a much better world if we could measure this, and if we could help people to achieve these basic, you know, levels of human dignity, really?
0: Yeah, yeah, and it, so yeah, so it's so it's much more complex than the than than a GDP metric, but it does like it does take reality into account more than then our current economic model that just has this unrestrained growth as if there are no limits to the planet or to the planet's resources. So it's more complicated but it's more reflective of reality um,
1: And like you know it's it's being adopted. So for example, Amsterdam have adopted this model.
0: And then our and then our own president Michael D. Higgins was addressing the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in October 2020. And he was discussing the donut model as a a way forward for economic activity.
1: And like you said, that it's more complicated there. But, you know, in Ireland, we have used um, the GDP model, the profit driven model um, to measure our own success. But people fall through the cracks.
0: Yeah, and it's also a nonsense. Like so much of our GDP growth anyways is just big multinationals like logging their profits in Ireland where there's been actually no economic activity.
1: And wouldn't we have a much better society if we could actually measure our success by these lovely social foundations? Like, you know, those children who maybe can't access education, the people who are having difficulty accessing healthcare. Wouldn't that be... (laughs) It just sounds infinitely better to me.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Acknowledging and the finiteness of things is infinitely better.
1: Yeah, and like, I think, you know, going back to COVID, <laughs> if COVID has shown us anything, it's shown us if we actually want to do something, we can do it. So even if it is a more complicated model than profit and loss and a balance sheet, we can do it. We can totally do it if we, yeah. if the will is there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a big part of us living sustainably within planetary boundaries while every meeting everyone's basic needs is actually just wealth redistribution. And that sounds very scary and that sounds very like, oh, we're coming to steal your stuff. But that's
1: Communism, Dara <laughs> <laughs>
0: We're coming to steal your stuff, and we're going to give you loads of donuts instead. Um, that's that's uh, that's, but that's It'd be a donut
1: a day for everyone now, and that's the end of that.
0: But but wealth wealth redistribution isn't this isn't this scary thing. We're talking about the super rich, and we're talking about providing for people who haven't had their basic human rights met.
1: And I think the thing is, Dara. Like I think the 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 gulf between say I suppose the, the normal people and the super rich has widened dramatically in the last 30 to 50 years. I mean, there's been a huge increase and the, the myth is that, oh well, if the super rich get wealthier, there's a trickle down effect. We're all, it's like a rising tide mm. lifts all boats. But that's been found to not be the case. What happens is the wealthier get wealthier, but the people at the the bottom end of the scale, the poorer people they don't. They typically just get poorer, or, or they're 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 left behind. The um,
0: super rich have gotten even richer during COVID. The wealth mm-hmm. that has gone to billionaires, billionaires have gotten so so much richer during this crisis, and that economic inequality that you are talking about that has developed over the last thirty to fifty years has been accelerated by this crisis. But yeah, it is worth it is worth thinking about what a billion is compared to a million. So I've actually worked it out, Ellen. Yeah. So a million. If if I was to give you a million euro in a hundred thousand euro instalments, I would give you a hundred thousand euro every day for ten days. Yeah. Okay. If I was yeah. to give you a billion euro in 100,000 euro installments, how long do you think it would take me to give you the billion?
1: Um, let me see now. Well, it, it doesn't sound like it would be that much longer. You know, maybe, I don't know, 100 days, you could kind of say, even though I know that's wrong.
0: <laughs> it would take 27 years.
1: Compared to 10 days.
0: Compared to 10 days, yeah. So that is that is the difference between uh, a million and a billion so so if you take th- a hundred thousand we can visualize it we can think of like oh two cars okay so i can buy two cars a day for nice 10 cars, days Dara. nice oh yeah i'd be buying <laughs> good cars now jesus you know i mean um
1: I know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, couple of couple of couple of Teslas. Don't buy cars. Uh, so I could buy a lovely. I could buy. Uh, I could buy, could buy. Like
1: how many electric bikes? How many really nice family-sized electric bikes could you buy? Like a really how many nice- monthly
0: travel passes for Dublin's public transport could I buy? But anyways, <laughs> think of it in whatever terms you want. A hundred thousand, you can visualize a few years' wages, four years' wages, three years' wages, five years, depending on where you are. You get that all in a day for 10 days versus you get that all in a day for 27 years. So when we talk about wealth redistribution, we're talking about this obscene amount of money and wealth redistribution can be taxing the rich. Big, huge idea here, guys. I don't know if anyone else has come up with this, but what we're going to do, right,
1: certainly not the rich (laughs) they certainly don't like that the
0: rich people that have lots of money I know this is a revolutionary idea but the people that have billions we're going to take some of their money off them in the form of tax and give it to the poor in the form of services in the form of allowances in the form of incomes
1: So, Dara, come on, hit me with some solutions here. Hit me with some actions. Uh,
0: yes, uh, we've gone very big picture, but I suppose to before getting into sort of the, the 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 small stuff, vote for politicians that are thinking and talking about the big picture. You know, like look look out for the politicians that are talking about taxing billionaires, that are talking mm. about taxing multi-billion corporations, that are talking about putting in long-term plans. Because that's what we need. So so and you know, sort of yeah, and question question the politicians that aren't doing that. Like that's so important because like all this stuff we've said, some of it is not as commonplace in discourse as it should be, but it is so 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 important. So look at the politicians that are talking about these kind of things. That would be and one thing, thing is- I would say.
1: It's the billionaires that will have a much greater voice and much greater access to the politicians than the people with nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's potentially those politicians will be a little bit on the fringe, those who do come out with these crazy ideas.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) For saving the world. Then I suppose
0: to go back to what we said about the very start is that, you know, I consider that we are... We're part of the natural world, we're human beings, we're citizens. We are consumers as well. And we do have a role within the economy. So use the power of your money to bring about the change that you want to see. So that can involve buying local.
1: Covid has really showed us the importance of what buying local can do. And just how important it is to buy within the community in a shop that supports the community, that employs the community, that brings positivity to the community, rather than clicking on some anonymous, you know, conglomerate online or going to some, you know, company that really doesn't help out, you know, our local community. I
0: think COVID has really shown to us, it's really helped us to understand what our local economy is. You know, and where we can put our money that helps the local economy, and that really can help us to understand the relationship of us, our local economy, and climate action. Once again, the economy is such a cross-cutting subject, but like cutting down on food waste is a huge thing you can do. Just buying buying less, not buying stuff you don't need. Then broaden that, like to to close don't buy clothes you don't need, don't buy stuff you don't need. Be willing to spend more money on products and on companies that are doing the right thing. So to stick with food and fashion, look at the organic growers, look at the local growers, you are going to pay more than if you buy in a supermarket, but for your money, you are contributing, say, to local biodiversity in a part of Ireland, you're contributing to local jobs, and you're contributing maybe to carbon sequestration. Same with buying clothes. By If you buy local, you are contributing to the local economy, and you are also not contributing to environmental damage and terrible working conditions in another part of the world.
1: Buy well, buy once, Dara. Say that again buy well and buy once
0: yeah
1: so if you buy if if you sometimes you know you might go in and there's two things for sale and one of them's more expensive but if the quality is better it will last longer so yeah. a you're not going to be throwing it out it's not going to be you know contributing to to waste and it, you know the potentially the carbon emissions used to create both products was the same, but you're not going to have to go and buy the same thing in a couple of years' time again to replace it,
0: yeah, and that's so yeah, and that's that kind of does bring in that does sort of bring in the wealth inequality again, because people with less income can sometimes only afford the cheaper option, which in yeah. the long run is more costly, whereas the people with more income can buy the long term thing, which saves them even more income mm. in the long run. And, and it widens that gap. So I think that puts even more of an imperative on people. If you can buy the right thing, if you can spend that little bit more extra, then do. Because if, say, everyone who can do that increases the demand for, for sustainable products, then that brings down the price overall and makes it more accessible for other people.
1: And the one thing I think we've learned from COVID is that it's okay to have our lives simplified totally, a bit, totally,
0: yeah, I, yeah,
1: and you know i I think maybe if that's one action, think about, could you simplify your life, um and typically, if we simplify our lives, we are consuming less, and everything we consume, be it buying stuff, eating stuff, using stuff, using energy. Um, that all has a climate impact, it all has an impact on climate or biodiversity, it all has an impact on the planetary boundaries yeah. um, so think, is there something today that I could go out and simplify
0: Yeah, and to bring us right back full circle, Ellen, uh, to that study about biological diversity, diversity evoking happiness an additional 10% of bird species increases Europeans' life satisfaction as much as a comparable increase in income <laughs> mm-hmm. So there are you know so think about that 10 percent more birds makes you as happy as 10 percent more wages um, according to this study so there are really simple free quick fixes out there to make you happy and more content without without buying stuff, which is a lovely lovely thought I think This episode of The Covid Alarm Clock was written and presented by Dara Wynne and Ellen Hegarty. It was produced and edited by Robert Cotter. Original music composed by Robert Cotter.
1: Please follow us on social media for up-to-date news on the podcast and the climate crisis. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Covid Alarm Clock and we are now also on YouTube.
0: And tune in next week for the last episode of the series where we will be looking at the subject of ecology. Until then, bye. Bye, bye,
1: bye, 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 bye. Bye. Do you want to go for some donuts? Bye. Nom, 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 nom.